Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 469. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And for more information or check out other shows on the network, do please visit evergreenpodcast.com. I'm excited to bring to you this interview with Jackie Acho. Jackie is president of the Acho Group, a strategy and leadership consulting firm that she founded in 2005. With a PhD from MIT, she's worked for technology, industrial, academic, nonprofit, and economic development clients with a particular focus on growth and innovation, strategy, and leadership development. She's also the author of The Currency of Empathy, The Secret to Thriving in Business and Life that came out in February 2020. Her current work includes empathy-centered cultural transformation with the Cleveland Police. In this conversation with Jackie, we discuss her inspiring personal journey, dealing with cancer, why she moved to Istanbul in Turkey, her work on empathy about leadership, sexy leaders, work-life balance, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com and do please take a couple of seconds to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Jackie Acho. It's a pleasure to have you on my show. We obviously connected uh, quite a while ago, being interested in empathy. And you've got this book, Currency of Empathy, The Secret to Thriving in Business and Life, that you published uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, or at least in 2020, as I recall. Uh, I would love for you to introduce yourself, Jackie, as you'd like to. And I want to get into your current context so that we're all on the same playing field. Okay, sounds good. So I am a businesswoman, an entrepreneur, a speaker and author like you. Um, I did not start with empathy. I got a PhD in chemistry from MIT, so empathy was not nearly my professional starting point. From there, I was alone on the lab bench and decided I wanted to work with people on problems that were broader in scale. I went to McKinsey Company, where I stayed for the next decade. I was a, um, in the Chicago office and a partner in the Cleveland office. My specialty was growth and innovation and strategy, so I was always doing forward-looking planning with companies and also in technology economic development, um, leveraging my background. Um, in 2005, I left McKinsey to start my own business because I had a baby and a toddler and I didn't want to outsource them. And so my husband and I both made some changes so that we could balance our work and our family better. And that, you know, didn't involve so much travel, which I loved, loved, loved when I was younger. But, um, as I had responsibilities at home, it didn't seem, didn't seem as appealing to be so far away. So in my own business, I continued doing growth strategy, innovation, technology-based economic development. And then it was around 2007, 2008, that I really started waking up to this concept of empathy. I started a blog called Currency of Empathy back then, which, you know, mostly landed on deaf ears. And when I was Speaking about the topic, I got a lot of blank stares. Um, you know, I would be invited to speak on women in leadership and 
women in science and different things. And I always managed to talk about this um, human superpower of empathy that we have. And people didn't really recognize it or understand what I was talking about back then. But slowly, slowly, people started to um, kind of wake up to empathy. And I think it, people thinking, boy, this is really something missing. So it was around 2014, I gave a TEDx talk called A Good Day's Work Requires Empathy. And it was really all about the power of empathy at work toward innovation and inclusion, which had been so elusive to large and small companies. And um, from that point forward, I, I pivoted a bit and I did a lot more work with um, developing cultural empathy in companies because I saw it being much more of a lever to the kind of performance that they wanted um, personally and organizationally, including such organizations as the Cleveland Police um, doing a, a cultural transformation centered on empathy. So um, all of this continued to simmer. And yes, I was writing everything down and ended up publishing which was about five days before I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and something like a month before we realized we were going to be in a global pandemic for, we didn't know how long, but it was certainly going to be at least two years as we found out. Um, so the last two years have been interesting to say the least because I have been fighting the cancer. Um, successfully, I think we can say since I'm still here and most people who get this cancer do discover it late. That's the nature of the cancer. And uh, most people, um, you know, do end up succumbing to it, um, ovarian cancer. So um, that's a whole story in and of itself. But that's why I'm in Istanbul, because I was treated with um, traditional Western chemotherapy beginning. It's really the only way to halt uh, a high-grade, fast-growing serous carcinoma, ovarian cancer. Um, and I tried everything else um, because I'm very much into health and was, quote unquote, the healthiest person you ever met before I got the cancer diagnosis. All my doctors congratulated me on being so healthy. Um, but then, boom, cancer. So as a recovering chemist and business person and entrepreneur, I have a lot of perspective on all of sort of the cancer industrial complex, but I went through traditional chemotherapy, protected myself with nutritional and supplemental support, um, made it to what they call scan remission, but my markers were remained high. And um, sure enough, like most people, um, the cancer started roaring back. And at some point, my oncologist washed his hands of me, tousled my hair, actually did that and told me I had two months to live. That was in November of 2021. So the joke's on him because I'm still here. I decided to come to Istanbul where there is an integrative oncology clinic that does um, chemotherapy combined with lots of alternative therapies, nutritional supports, and so on so that you can really manage cancer as a chronic disease and maintain quality of life. And, and hopefully... You know, fingers crossed at some point achieve a remission. Um, but I am feeling well and doing well and able to have conversations like this. So um, I'm grateful to still be here. I'm, I'm, I should already be dead and I'm not. Well, thank you for sharing 
that, Jackie. What a journey. There's uh, several questions I want to go in. I'm going to try to keep it chronologically in the way that you reported what you just said. Uh, but I, I think it's worth getting into all of them. Let's start with, you said back in around 2007, you you got the empathy bug, if you will, or at least you started this blog. I was wondering if there was a moment, an aha moment that led you to uh, A, get into empathy, and then B, to start writing about it. Yeah, I have to credit parenting. So there are two points in our lives neuroscientists understand where our capacity for developing our empathy circuitry in our brain is um, really high. One is during early childhood, and especially when we're very young, pre-verbal, so that we are trying to communicate our needs and be understood before we even have words. So there's the emotional or affective part of empathy that really kicks in that helps our caregivers know we're hungry, we're wet, this is what we need, we need to sleep, whatever it is. And it's a two-way street. So when you have very young children, this communication process is happening in a mirror image. And so I really was transformed by having children, as most people are, when they do. And a lot of us go through that experience. Now, you don't have to have children to develop your empathy, obviously. And hopefully, when you were young, you got what you needed from your own parents and caregivers so that you do have a capacity for empathic development as you grow. But parenting is a really powerful moment for developing your empathy. And my children happened to go to a preschool that understood this. So there I was coming into parenting as this, you know, what I thought of as a powerful executive, right? I was a partner. I, I, you know, I had this PhD in chemistry and I really had been leaning into all of that intellectual stuff. And yeah, you I, were a power woman. Yeah. And I had sort of gotten out of touch with my heart and, um, and the kids brought me back to it and centered me back on it. So uh, I have to credit them, first of all, but then also Simon Baron Cohen published a terrific book. It's hard to get through the first chapter because he talks about psychopathy, but it's called The Science of Evil on Empathy and the Origins of Cruelty. And when I read that book, I kind of had an aha moment because he took this soft subject. So he's a neuroscience professor at Cambridge University in England. And and he happens to be Sasha Baron Cohen's cousin, but this is not a funny book. This is an academic book. But he took this soft concept called empathy and he solidified it by um, describing the neuroscience behind it and describing the developmental um, pieces of it, the sort of affective emotional piece that starts first and this cognitive imaginative piece that comes as we get verbal. And the more I read about that, um, the more it really synced up with the way I understood the world, because I don't believe so much in evil. I believe in the absence of good. And that's kind of how he described it. It's the absence of this capacity for empathy that really leads to a lot of the evil doings in the world. Uh, I, I plan to get into that a little bit more later. 
But just starting with your chemistry notion, I, I imagine people working in laboratories at the desks and, and kind of focused on, you know, checking out molecules or whatever you're doing. And, and similarly, the thought goes to people who do coding. They're looking at their screens and, and writing in all sorts of syntax and everything. And my, my impression is that they're pretty much into themselves and their work as opposed to their colleagues. Uh, empathy is a is kind of missing, I would say, in the programmer coder world. What's it like in the chemistry world? Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say, but I, I wouldn't even say that we're into ourselves. We're into some intellectual realm that really is somewhat devoid of humanity, which is a contextual problem for scientific research, mm. <laughs> actually, and technology development. You know, I think it's why, you know, we see a lot of innovation that really isn't necessarily good for humanity, because just because something is progressive um, or um, new doesn't mean that it has uh, an appropriate context for moving humanity toward a more generative place. Um, so it really also is very precise. Um, so like I said, I was lonely at the lab bench. Um, I really loved, loved, loved teaching at MIT. So that's where, and I spent extra time teaching. Um, you know, I volunteered to continue. So I spent half my time there with students. And that part I loved because, you know, that was dealing with people um, and with their growth, um, you know, with human development, um, which, of course, I was very interested in. I mean, I do love science. I think it's the language of the universe. I think that um, understanding it is so important, but I think that it's been twisted into something that we try to control, something that we try to profit off of at all costs, and um, you know, something that we try to own, you know, through patenting new molecules or drugs that aren't necessarily, um, they don't necessarily confer any big benefit. On They're you. new. That allows me to put a big N-E-W on it so you can put it higher in the shelf and sell more. Exactly. Exactly. Right. But it, but it's not, it, it's, it's, it's just not, so Madeline Lengel had, has a great quote in her book, Walking on Water. She says that all true art is, channeling a cosmos into the chaos and sometimes we channel more chaos into the chaos and i think that that happens a lot when we're when we're looking so narrowly at things as the way that research questions are often posed because of the way the whole publish and perish industry works we don't get to ask the larger questions that matter or we aren't brave enough to ask the larger questions that matter. Yeah. So I was, I was, I was, eager, I was eager to bounce after my four years at MIT, and I was grateful that McKinsey was heavily recruiting technical PhDs at the time. Hmm. the The term that came to mind as you were speaking and making that citation, Jackie, was the cosmic insignificance of so much of what we do in business. Yes. Right, exactly. Busyness. It's busyness. 
<laughs> we keep ourselves very busy, but we don't necessarily progress humanity. And so innovation is something often associated, I suppose, mostly with industrialists producing new somehow. Working at McKinsey, where did you, what was your journey attached to empathy in, in the consulting business without necessarily, I suppose, throwing colleagues under the bus? But where, where did that go? So, I mean, empathy wasn't an explicit conversation at McKinsey either. Um, you know, it was very much in the business world, um, very much driven toward increasing shareholder value. I was there throughout the 90s and early 2000s. Um, I did work with about half of my time uh, in technical and scientific companies because that's my background. And I would say a lot of what I did in hindsight with respect to empathy was helping the business side understand the scientific side and the scientific side understand the business side because there wasn't a lot of cross-training and there was a lot of misunderstanding between the two sides. So somebody who could bridge that gap had a certain power in driving communication, which would then drive um, uh, innovation because all of these different ideas would be included. Um, so I would say that's that was part of my empathy training. And then there would be two other areas that were valued at McKinsey. One was, of course, client service. So McKinsey actually has a leadership model that includes you know, client leadership. And I loved working with people. I mean, that's why I went there. I had missed the chance to work with people and help them grow. Um, you know, in a way, the business was sort of the, not the sidebar of what we did, but it wasn't all of what we did because I just really wanted those people to succeed and to grow in, in themselves personally and professionally. And, and they wanted the same for me. So that was really a, a nice, mutual, empathetic um, context. And then people leadership was another part of our leadership model that was really valued at McKinsey. And, you know, you really couldn't be someone who chewed up and spit out people um, if you wanted to have the best people wanting to work for you. Any sort of project-based business where people move around a lot, the best people have choice. And um, so I really came to understand very quickly that my job was to help them grow as leaders in the business world and really find where their strengths were and where they would sparkle and, you know, help them shore up anything that they were missing that they really needed, but really what was going to make them special. And I really love that work. And I would say that was also empathetic work, but it wasn't explicit. It wasn't explicitly discussed at McKinsey. It wasn't a word that we used. Well, in, in some ways, sometimes when you do a program on something, it's because you don't have it in the first place. I suppose sometimes putting a label on something needs to happen at the beginning. And from what I understand from a friend of mine who's working there, they actually are now explicitly uh, talking about empathy at the leadership level. Um, and they're doing, you know, lit literally empathy courses and stuff like that. But anyway, that's for another day. So I want to in the time that we have left, Jackie, um, I just wanted to explore a little bit more about your journey uh, with regard to empathy in your battle with your cancer. 
And my sister's a doctor, her husband's a doctor. Generally, as we get older, we have to deal with doctors. Empathy is a is a thing you imagine that doctors ought to have, but if they have too much of it, they can risk becoming eaten by their job because it's stressful dealing with such heavy topics all the time. But what what would you like to tell us about how you see empathy in the journey that you've been on? You know, I think what I have discovered most in these last two years is one of the biggest barriers to empathy is getting your own stuff out of the way. Um, and cancer is a triggering topic for a lot of people. So I really learned that, um, you know, my own situation could be triggering for people and their response to my diagnosis or, you know, my um, experience through this journey and the treatments of it um, would have to do with uh, their fears of getting cancer. Um, you know, it all, it's kind of started with, well, geez, you know, I know that you've been so healthy. I was a certified yoga teacher on the side. I, you know, I eat a very plant strong, clean diet, you know, for the last decade or more, well, more now, I didn't even use Advil or Tylenol. I mean, I, I really was quite healthy. So I think there was a lot of fear about, well, if you can get cancer, then what about me? I, I didn't have any cancer genes, you know, which 95% of people don't. That's another um, sort of red herring when it comes to scientific research. But um, so I would say that, you know, a lot of people get their fear triggered um, in conversation with me around the cancer. So it started to mean that I had to put some good boundaries around myself and who I discussed what with. Um, I'm very open about my diagnosis. I'm very open about what I'm going through. I've been blogging what I've been learning, especially looking through the lens of empathy in these last two years. But, um, but I do find that people's responses, you know, often start with their fear, their, um, uh, their feelings, how my cancer affects them, especially if they're family members, wow. not my, not my immediate family, but, you know, kind of what it means to them that I have cancer or my coworkers. Right. So, um, so that's been interesting because it really taught me that step one Empathy is sort of selfish first. You kind of have to get your triggers out of the way in order to sit in understanding with somebody else and have an appropriate emotional response. And that's the way I define empathy. And that last piece is so important. And a lot of people leave it out when they define empathy. The part about having an appropriate emotional response means it's the response that the other person needs from you. It's not your knee-jerk response to their situation, which really can be taking your own emotional trip. Hmm. I think that's what I've learned most, having cancer about empathy. Well, on the one hand, what I hear you say, Jackie, is you're having to deal with everyone else's emotions in talking to you about your situation. That's true. And I will say that the people who really are centered in their own empathic development are amazing you know they're 
that's not the majority of people, but it really is a superpower. To, so to have somebody, some somebodies who are willing to sit with you in whatever's going on, right? Whether you're afraid of dying, as I've been, you know, I mean, I, I got to that place, you know, and trying to plan for a peaceful passing, like that's that stuff happened to me, um, you know, or celebrating a good result, you know, whatever it is, but to really sit with you and what's happening and not wish it away or, um, or just try to deny it, I guess. Um, they're a real gift. And most of it has to do with simply listening, not offering a solution, not telling me your story of how you were, you once worried you had cancer, but you actually didn't. <laughs> you know, I've heard so many of those and I'm like, oh boy, that must've been really hard for you. But yeah. yeah, so, so that's, uh, it's a real, it's a real gift and it is a superpower and it is something everybody could cultivate, but they have to wait a beat before they react and they have to get their own triggers out of the way. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. So what I, my mind wobbled onto as I was listening to you was the, this notion of transference that Freud would talk about. And, and I, and I would, I was wondering, you know, cause at some level, what we're doing is we're projecting onto you my own fears and, and that's, so the ability for me to understand that I have fears and that that's coming through, how do I compensate for that so I can talk to you in a way that's dealing with you, or at least listening to you, of course, and moving away from my ego and my issues to be in a neutrality of listening and to stop that transference happening as far as me projecting onto you what's happening, what needs to happen otherwise is to allow for the transference of you onto me. Right. And there should be some mutuality, right? So, you know, first you listen to me and you sit with me in whatever I'm trying to communicate with you, but then I can sit with you and what that's bringing up for you, but it should be separated. It should be, it sh there should be mutuality. I should be able to um, relate to your experiences without my triggers too, but it's got to go back and forth. And uh, in something like cancer, it just, it's been a very dramatic demonstration of how people's fears and triggers get in the way of that. Yeah, exactly. And, well, uh, thank you for that, Jackie. And it makes me really feel, and this is something, uh, my bias, if you will, I'm not trying to take it onto my story, but is, is that I think that a lot of the problems we have in this world are because of getting in the way, it's sort of me getting in the way of listening. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is the big barrier to empathy. <laughs> and empathy is our superpower, right? So if yeah. we can deal with that, if we can deal with that and, and 
you know, and also preemptively take care of the next generation in such a way that they have fewer triggers than we did. <laughs> right. So we left with so much work as they get to be adults in recognizing and overcoming their triggers. We'll be in better shape. Right. Well, that that's, I'm going to be sort of careful about this, but uh, I frame this, but all right. So let me just a little preamble. One is you talk about how, uh, uh, affective empathy is the new asset class. You uh, also talk about the signs of our empathy deficit disorder. And so, right, you've got it. We have a deficit. What we need is affective empathy. Um, certainly, there was uh, Obama, I, th- I believe it was he who sort of said that we have this sort of the epic or empathy deficit uh, century or something like that. Then you also talk about Rifkin saying, well, actually, empathy is on the rise if you look back to the beginning of humanity. So in the larger context, we're on the way, but it seems like we've dipped. Is, the, is that your feeling? Or Because I was trying to di- dissect your different references uh, that you have. And, and I was wondering whether you feel that in today's world with these triggers and, and all that going on, a possible maybe more... Uh, individualism and hyper individuality and maybe even narcissism going on it's been it's been on the decline recently what do you think i think that um our generation sort of 50s and above um really have i think we have driven a lot of narcissism um individually societally um i think that the way that our Leadership development pipelines have worked, have sapped people's empathy. So by the time they get to the top of any given, you know, company, corporation, where there's they're in charge of so much people and money and power, um, I think that they make decisions as if humanity doesn't matter. So I think that while we are still in power, we are seeing an empathy deficit. And I think that um, it certainly has reared its head politically in the U.S. and, you know, globally. Um, But I feel hopeful when I look at the next generation. So when Rifkin talks about empathy rising, and there's been a lot more written, too, about uh, younger generations. You know, I look at my kids are now 18 and 19. Um, I look at kids who are just graduating from college now. And even though we give them a bad rap because they've been engaged in social media in a way that, you know, sometimes makes us worried, um, mostly I see a lot more empathetic behavior in their generation. So we need to wisen up and uh, get out of their way to some extent. What I don't like is when people put it all on their shoulders and say, it's up to you next generation to fix climate change because we screwed all that up. So we need to wake up and make the changes that will be generative to humanity um, and not uh, be so selfish about holding on to our power and about driving our old fashioned agendas um, because we can't just leave it all on their uh, on their porch to fix. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not ethical. 
Um, but I, I do feel hopeful when I look at the next generation because I think that they, even in the way they use social media, I think that they have um, been developing more empathy than we did as we came up. So what I, I hear from you, Jackie, is that we, uh, you, at least in what you're saying, is that you, you feel like our generation should take responsibility for the situation we're in. And yet before, I heard you say that uh, we need to avoid having so many triggers. And my observation is that we seem to have proliferated the number of words that trigger reactions at the individual level. Are we responsible for that as well? Yeah, we are. And I think that we need to um, you know, work on that individually and as a society. I think it's a I think it's a pretty big deal. So in the time that's left to us, there are two two topics I wanted to bring up uh, and both potentially a little bit uh, not controversial, but uh, a little bit eyebrow raising. First is hashtag sexy leader. And uh, so I, that got me, you know, I sort of smirked at, at the hashtag component of that. And, and you're pretty forthright about, well, let's talk about sex. Um, we certainly, you, you talk a lot about the sexes and, and it's maybe um, at some level, uh, you, you, you kind of, I think rightly so, discuss how women generally are more inclined to be empathic and men generally, generalizations being what they are, are less so. Uh, you also mentioned just now social media. So I thought that was like appropriate thing to talk about. Hashtag sexy leader. What is a hashtag sexy leader in your eyes, Jackie? It's someone who's willing to co-create. So part of what I believe we've done wrong in even the way we've, we construct this idea of leadership is we create this pointy pyramid, which is super uncomfortable to sit on top of, right? It doesn't even feel good. And those of us who are beneath this so-called leader confer our authority and responsibility onto this person, which is super heavy. And then the leader then thinks that he or she has all of the authority and responsibility and wisdom for all of these people, quote unquote, below him or her. Um, and I think that that's sort of a just an old fashioned notion that, you know, I'm not even sure it really ever served us very well, but it definitely doesn't serve us now because if we're trying to include all perspectives in our answer, because there really is no heaven on earth without everybody being involved in these solutions, which is what we've been trying to work towards, but badly, uh, you know, we're not, we haven't been achieving it very well. Um, then we need to have different models of co-creation um, there was actually a, a job opportunity I was offered, uh, a part of another little instigator for me getting into this topic of empathy was this job opportunity. And my kids were very little. The job was really a super thing. I thought it might be something I'd love, but it was at the top of one of these pointy pyramids and it was going to require 120 hours a week. And, uh, and I ended up proposing to share the job with another super qualified person who was um, really a wonderful compliment to me and skills. And, you know, of course, the board listened to us for a while and then came back and said, actually, Jackie, we just really want you to take the job. And I refused um, because I didn't want to be sitting at the top of that point and to throw my kids under the bus since I had, you know, left McKinsey to try and balance work and family. So 
I really think this idea of co-creation is very important. And that's why I brought up the topic of sex at all. Um, and I, I've met women who are way less empathetic than men like you, actually. And I've, you know, met, um, you know, women who are, who are super empathetic um, and, and men who are not. So it, it doesn't vary as much by the sexes as some people talk about, in my opinion, or at least in my experience. But this idea of two beings coming together and in a 50-50 way creating something entirely new is really what I mean by sexy leader. You know, the word sexy has so many meanings and implications. But what I really mean is this co-creative aspect of sex. When I listen to co-creation, my little mind, Freudian slip, went to procreation. And then I, then I sort of, my mind said, oh, well, it's actually one plus one equals three, which is perhaps an outcome of procreation as well. Um, as in family. Um, so that's where I was going with that. I want the last thing I want to talk to you about, Jackie, because I actually have so many other things I wanted to talk to you about, but um, I've enjoyed so far. So the last thing, and, it's, and I, I, I found it very uh, forthright, work-life balance, uh, this thing we, we, we strive to have fulfillment at work, fulfillment in life, and, and then you're having kids and running around. You then write, workalism, workaholism is your secret weapon. And I, I, I raised that, that made me raise my eyebrows. Uh, explain us that point. I think that's one of the more strong and different type of points that I don't usually hear. Oh, I, I, I don't believe workaholism is a secret weapon. I think workaholism is a secret addiction. <laughs> <laughs> and it certainly was my addiction, um, like any other, you know, uh, it was my addiction of choice. Um, and it was the way that I avoided doing the emotional work, which, you know, can be more difficult. Um, I'm glad you brought up this topic of work-life balance because affective empathy is the piece of empathy that I believe we're missing more. And most empathy training focuses on the cognitive imaginative side. In other words, let me tell you how to think about how your customer is feeling, how your employee is feeling. And a lot of that is actually toward the end of manipulation. So, you know, somebody with super high cognitive empathy, but zero affective empathy or ability to feel is, is actually the, the uh, DSMV's uh, uh, definition of a psychopath. So, you know, that's not where, where we want to go. So this piece of affective empathy is really developed when you make space for the kind of empathic development that comes through living in relationship with other people, starting with yourself, understanding yourself, your own triggers, and then moving out to your immediate family, you know, whether you have children or a spouse or whoever it is you live closest to, and then moving out to your coworkers and your neighbors and so on, moving out to the to society at large and things you read and, and relate to on the internet. So this piece of developing affective empathy requires, and I think I would probably update the word to say, it's not so much a balance between work and life, it's more of an integration 
between work and life, because I think part of what we got wrong in our generation is this idea that you can be one person at work and another person at home. There, there are no two people. There's only one person. And wherever you're faking it, uh, you're paying a price. I so agree with that. And I certainly, um, I, th- I feel that that's part of why people are, are, are questing for authenticity. And it's actually, in my opinion, uh, almost a projection or again, you know, putting it on the other person. I want them to be authentic because I don't know how to be my full self myself. And, and the idea that you turn down that job what, for me is indicative of, of this idea of the courage to live the life I want of me to be the person that I am as opposed to the the title or the extrinsic value that other people are going to say, Oh, look at Jackie. She's the CEO of this big company or whatever. Yeah. It was, hard, it was heartbreaking at the time. And I, sure. I have to tell you, I spent some time crying in the bathtub over that, mm-hmm. but also shedding that um, pursuit of the external identity, which had driven me to that point. Such a common theme. Um, uh, the, one of the quotes that you have is leadership as usual is not effective because it is not a f- effective. Uh, so E E replaced by A. Um, I want to finish with uh, one more quote. And then uh, just because there's so many things in your book that are absolutely brilliant, wonderful read. Um, and it, it rel- relates to me um, in, in my, my world, but it's hopefully something that other people can take, which is you write men's lack of belonging and connection for boys and girls alike true empathy from dad is the real currency of the actually lucky sperm club. So on this encouraging note, uh, Jackie, where we seek to find an integrative life, like you're trying to find integrative healthcare in Istanbul, which seemed to be like another connecting of dots, Jackie, how can, thank you for being on the show and how can anybody um, get your book, of course, and uh, follow your blog and, and everything else you're up to. Thank you so much. This has been, as I expected, a marvelous conversation. Your um, questions are fantastic. Thank you. So my book is on Amazon. It's called Currency of Empathy. Um, and um, so that's the way to get the book. I have a website, which is JackieAcho.com, J-A-C-K-I-E-A-C-H-O.com. You can find my blog there. Um, And I continue to blog here from Istanbul. Um, So there's uh, been a lot of articles about Western medicine, integrative oncology, but also um, a lot of insights into empathy as I continue on this journey. So I love to interact with people. I love to get comments on the blog or emails. And um, it's really being in that conversation that nourishes me and makes me feel closer to home, even while I'm far away. As you write, uh, leadership is a two-way conversation also in your book. So let's hear it for engagement. Conversation, as you know, that's one of my big topics of the year. And I look forward to many more with you, Jackie. That sounds wonderful, Mentor. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on minterdial.com. 
Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Thank you. 
Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast.